0: Good night.
1: Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
2: Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Beverly Flaxton, the human behavior coach. She's a two-timing, best-selling, and gold award-winning author, corporate consultant, trainer, executive coach, successful entrepreneur. Uh, she's been featured on the Wall Street Journal, MSNBC.com, at USA Today, and many others. Beverly's new book is Self Talk for a Calmer You, uh, which reveals how people can use positive self-talk to control anxiety and live a happier, more relaxed life, which we have to assume that most of most of us want to do, including myself. Welcome to the show, Beverly. Nice to have you on this morning.
3: I'm very happy to be here, Catherine.
2: Well, okay, your book, uh, the title, I guess, does speak for itself, <laughs> Self-Talk for a Calmer You. We all want that, but, uh, you know, this is the holiday season, and we're all supposed to be joyous and happy, and we just stuffed ourselves at Thanksgiving, and now we have Christmas and Hanukkah and all the rest of it, and we're supposed to be joyous, I guess, but I guess in reality... Millions of us are not joyous. We're miserable. And we, uh, suffer more sometimes during the holidays. And I know that's been ex- my experience working with clients as a social worker. Uh, so we're less joyous at this particular time. That's why I think it's, it's timely to, to be talking about your book and how we can calm us, ourselves down. And also why are we more stressful during these, the holiday season?
3: I think it's a combination of things, and and you've definitely identified something that's a problem that, unfortunately, I think we don't talk about enough. You know, you have the fact that it's supposed to be this joyous time, and people get the idea of the Norman Rockwell painting, and everyone gathered around a happy table and enjoying one another. And as you well know, um, the truth is, for many people, they've experienced loss. Uh, they may not have a very happy family. They could be alone. Uh, they may be dealing with difficulties like job loss or divorce. And so I think that that sense of it should be different gets so heightened during the holiday season. And this really is where then our self-talk, our negative self-talk, starts to go to town on us.
2: Yeah, you talked about losses, and I think holidays do bring up the losses, whether or not if you've lost somebody through divorce or death, they're not sitting at the table, uh, they're not there. Uh, if you've had difficulties with relatives during the year, it seems to get exacerbated during the holiday season, as you describe it, because, uh, you know, fighting ensues. and uh, You know, I see a lot of people even Thanksgiving trying to get a Thanksgiving table together and they can't do it, trying to make it that Norman Rockwell picture, which doesn't exist. Um, so, and then, but then you say, what we do instead of we exacerbate the problem rather than making it better by negative self talk so what is negative self talk What are we doing here?
3: So you know, it sounds like such a simple concept, Catherine. But what happens to us is a little bit more complex, and that's that we—I call it storytelling. So we start to tell ourselves these stories, and those should-be's come into play—the way that it should be. And you know, I should this, and I should that, and my life should this, or what I'm missing. And so what happens is, let's take as an example: I wanted to entertain at Thanksgiving. I invited my sister for you know the fourth time. This- year she turned me down again Instead of saying, yes, I have a difficult relationship with my sister, she turned me down again, which is the fact of that situation, we'll start to tell ourselves a story. Why did I have to come from a family where we don't get along? My sister was never, you know, and has never treated me well. I deserve better than this. And we'll go on a train, I call it, right? We jump on back of this train that just starts taking us down this track and we get ourselves more and more and more upset. And so it's not that the situation has changed for good or for bad, but the way we think about it has a lot to do with and how depressed and upset we end up being.
2: And Beverly, so what we do is, and I'm going to use it's kind of a, I guess, a psychological term, but perseverate. That's what I hear you saying. We keep saying this negative talk over and over. We <laughs> persevere, I guess. And what, we, what? If, so what do we do? to not be able to do that. Obviously, that's what you talk about in the book. How do we stop doing that? I mean, I know I do it. Um, I think that probably most of us do it on some, you know, to some degree or another.
3: Absolutely, Catherine. This is something I I try to say to people, as you catch yourself doing this, it's not about beating up on myself. Um, I teach this, and I laugh all the time because I say, wow, life gives me chances all the time to practice goes, I'll find myself, I'm talking to myself about this or that, and what am I doing here? We all do this. But what's critically important is that we start to recognize that we're doing it, because the change, Catherine, is that instead of taking this as, well, this is just normal, and wouldn't, and and yes, my sister turned me down, so wouldn't everybody talk to themselves negatively about it? Wouldn't everybody have that negative reaction? The truth is, we do have choice. We have more choice than what we tend to allow ourselves to take, and so the first step is just admitting and understanding and recognizing that we're doing this to ourselves. I call it kind of the triggers, right? Looking for those triggers that set us off and not beating up on ourselves, not criticizing ourselves for doing it, but just realizing, wow, I'm telling myself a story about my sister here. And the truth is I
2: have choice right now about whether I want to keep doing this or not. hold our hand, take us through it, and and that's a great example. My sister's not coming for Thanksgiving. She's also, I found out, not coming for Christmas either. So now what do I do? I mean, I am going through this process of telling this story over and over. Specifically, what do I do? I mean, a girlfriend will tell you, well, you know, and I I think you talk about this too, you know, look on the bright side. Well, that's not really that helpful. And looking on the bright side sounds kind of uh, Pollyanna-ish, really specifically in that kind of a situation, what do you do?
3: So let's walk through it. And I do want to be clear that, and I tell people this all the time, I don't believe this is about rose-colored glasses. This is not about painting a picture that says, well, it's actually really wonderful. I'll have extra food at the table. This is about getting ourselves to a bit of a more powerful place so that we're just not so drained by the experience. So let's walk through it. What will end up happening, because this is a disappointment for you so what will happen is you will be going about your day so you may be doing a little bit of shopping you may be you know reading something you and and something will happen where you will notice that you're starting to feel a little bit down and it could be anything from we lose our energy to i'm not feeling well to i just feel blue so those are the opportunities that our our mind and our body give us to kind of check in and then you say wow you know what? I got this picture in my mind of my sister and just you know how hard I've worked to try to build that relationship and how how much that rejection hurts and so you start to recognize the things that you're telling yourself about the situation. And so there's then three really important steps to take at this point. Number 1 is I call it the stop technique. So you recognize it's happening and right there you you choose to put up this Mental stop sign. If you're alone, you can say it out loud and you say stop. You're you're trying at that point to just interrupt that train. So you see that it's happening. Okay, stop, stop. But then what's really important as a next step is you want to have some more, I call it neutral, not positive, but just neutral language. And that's something like, You know, my sister is what she is. And yes, it is a life disappointment for me, but ruminating about it isn't going to change it. And so then the third step is then moving to something that is somewhat of a comfort for you. So it could be anything from, for me, I love the music from my youth, and so I will then start to either, if I'm somewhere I can't turn it on, sing a song in my head or turn Turn on the music. For somebody else, it could be um, maybe there's a poem, maybe there's a verse from some kind of scripture, something. And so you start to then focus your attention on that. And it's just some, so I'm not forcing myself to think about the situation positively. I'm admitting and owning the fact that this is a difficult situation for me, but then I'm taking my mind somewhere else. And I may have to do that, Catherine, 15 times during the day. But eventually what happens is instead of getting really drawn into it, you recognize it more quickly and you start to make those different choices about where you want to focus your attention.
2: So Beverly, what you're doing is you're changing the cycle. You get out of the cycle that that you're starting in when you start feeling blue or sad and getting into that negative talk. I just want to reiterate it because I think it's really important. And you create a new cycle of stop, neutral, and then actually comfort. And I guess comfort could come from many different places. I mean, you're describing thinking of a song that you like, or what else could if you can get through the stop and then create a neutral situation and then get to comfort. Um what other things can one use to comfort yourself?
3: Well, and so that so I try to uh talk about the things that are most simple, right? So cuz I could be sitting in my car, but but there really is a spectrum. So I I talk about it as the toolkit, right? Or there's this backpack that we um acquire of things. So there are things that give us that sense of, you know, things are right with the world. It could be anything. Uh I've had some folks that uh, they have children. They have pets, or they just have a beautiful scene somewhere that they've been in their lives that's really peaceful for them. It can be as simple as I have that. I actually have those skins on the back of my phone, um, so I'll flip. I, I could be in a meeting where this is happening, and I'll just flip my phone over and look at the faces of my kids. Or again, it could be a beautiful place you've been. So it could be visually something that your attention gets drawn to that you say, yes, this this is the reality with my sister, but my mind is now focused on, but these are the other things in my life. Um, For some people, I'm I'm a big proponent of doing that thankful list. So when you're not in that negative state, to sit down and write down the things in your life that really you are thankful for, you are happy for, and as, as extensive as you can make that list, sometimes it's helpful for people to then turn their attention and start to read the list again, it doesn't make my sister any more welcoming to me, but it makes my mind focus on those things that are robust in my life. Um, It can be things like, you know, I tell people too, if there's something that you just really enjoy, um, you know, binge TV watching is big for people or some kind, you know, reading a book about something or, you know, going online and looking, not, not Facebook, not the things that can bring us down, but something positive. So it, it's really having some things prepared, and, and I like to think of it as the toolkit, so I have a lot of things, because if I'm in my car, I may only have the choice to turn to the 70s station and play that music, but uh, if I'm at home, I might have the chance to say, you know what, I'm going to go and clean that closet, because while I don't love doing it, I'm always happy when it's done. So it's having, it's being a little bit prepared, Catherine, that, that's part of this, is knowing we're going to fall into it, and so having... Having some preparation for what we'll do once we get there.
2: Yeah, and being proactive about it and realizing as you're saying, that you have choices, because I think sometimes we feel like we don't have choices, or many people, and I, I really, I go back to this, get into the denial, you know, trying to pretend that it really isn't happening, like you say, oh, it's a good thing, it's a positive thing. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people on my show who diagnosed with cancer, for instance, and they talk about, you know, how that people will say, well, it was a blessing that I got cancer because then this happened and that ca-. and the you know, that happened, positive stuff, and they'll say, you know, that's not really true. There's no blessing. About me getting cancer. I mean, there are things that I did to or do to, um, to you know choices that I have to um, overcome the cancer or whatever, or to, or to take care of myself. But it, it's not a blessing, and, and isn't that what you? I mean, that's kind of an extreme thing. But I think some you know that kind of denial. Well, my sister's not coming. I don't like that. That really sucks. I don't like it, but I don't have to get into it. I, I don't have to get as you keep saying that negative talk. You can you can get out of it. And I I think that's really important to mention again because there is that that denial doesn't help either.
3: I could not agree more. And I think what happens when we're kind of taught, you know, so the reality for many people in their lives is you look back at things at the time you thought were you know awful things, and they led to something more positive. That happens. Sometimes. That doesn't happen all the time. But that's, I think, a, a backward looking approach, right? So I can have, you know, some sense at this point that losing that job was good because I wound up here. But the reality is, while I'm going through it to try to tell ourselves that there's some positive to the fact that we have absolutely no money to buy gifts this holiday season, your mind's going to reject that. It's not true, it's not accurate, <laughs> and so you're going to push it away. Way and so I really am more an advocate of you know what I call more the kind of the neutral the uh, just making it accepting that a little bit of it you know is what it is that this is I you know I have lost my job there is not the money this holiday season and so now what are my choices? See, what happens to us is we get so stuck in resisting and being negative about it and focusing on it, and if we're honest, that never, ever changes the situation. It just doesn't change it. It just depletes us. So I just advocate getting to that neutral place, that place where I get, I have a little bit more power to make my decisions about what I'd like to do next. And, and, and it's fair, I tell people especially, you know, something like your sister or, you know, loss of any kind, it's perfectly legitimate to give yourself some period of time to mourn that, right? That is a loss. You're very sad. And then you have to decide, do I want to stay in this place? Or do I want to see that there are other choices for me to make?
2: bevel, is there a continuum? Obviously, there is. I mean, your sister not coming for the holidays is one thing. Uh, the, the other end of the spectrum would be, and you mentioned loss, loss of a child, loss of a family member, spouse, let's say. A sp- uh, how do you, ha- do you handle that in the same way? Do you do the same thing? Because that's kind of at the, obviously, in terms of loss, that's much more horrific than, perhaps your sister not coming for the holidays
3: and absolutely and so when it's something as as great as that i really am a proponent i mean you still got to notice the self-talk because if you are you know bringing pictures of that person out and you know thinking about all these past holidays and how this is going to be different and you know that pain is just going to be continue to be open up open up, and i 'm not suggesting that you don't think about that person that you don 't um, like I said really mourn that loss, but you do have to kind of manage how much are you going to allow yourself to focus on it, but it 's much more important to take some of those outward steps you know i 'll specifically say to people at the holidays you know, the one thing that typically for most of us will turn our attention very quickly in another direction is to go physically, if you're able go do something for someone else who also is, has lost something or, you know, so this may be the year to volunteer at that soup kitchen or go to that nursing home or, because again, it just gives our minds something else to focus on. Uh, so it's not, it, it is much harder. There's no question about it, but it's not like you can't still get to some of these same results by recognizing what you're doing and making some choices. Like I said, I sometimes tell people, so let yourself have that half hour, you know, if you want it. But then the rest of the day you have to start to manage because otherwise you're just not going to be able to pull yourself out of it. And it, that is ultimately
2: a, a, a choice. It's hard to say, but it is a choice. Yep. And I'm quoting you, The kid, and I think this is, obviously what you're saying but the continual flow of negative self-talk takes a bad situation and intensify it or intensifies it and then people lose any chance they might have to find a small ray of happiness so you may be looking as you describe it the small ray of happiness but then you also say you have advice for defining and attaining your bliss well bliss is even more than a small ray of happiness how can we attain our bliss in life
3: Well, and this is where, so, you know, because we've talked about situations that are hard for people. And so, like I said, I think in order for people to even want to try this, they have to be able to say, well, I'm just getting to neutral. But there certainly are situations with this process and this way of approaching it where you're able to use this to really accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. Where there are opportunities for you to, you know, get that inner drive. And so that might be something like, you know, I'm, I, I'm going through an interview process right now and uh, there's a job that I've just really spent a lot of time investigating and I'm really focused on and, and it's something I really want. Well, I can use self-talk. To, so instead of going into the interview thinking, well, I hate interviews, I always get asked questions I can't answer. I really haven't prepared well for this. I'm so nervous if I this up. I mean, think about the things we say to ourselves. There's the opportunity for your, you know, your inner coach, your your person who sees the best in you to come to the forefront. And so instead of me telling myself, I'm not going to be able to do it, you say, you know what, I'm, I'm a person who can think on my feet. I'm a person who believes in what I'm doing. I have got the, this is going to be my day where I'm going to really be on the whole time. So, so we have our choice there when it comes to something that we really want that's positive that we're moving towards. You know, instead of giving ourselves the, uh, the, the, the opposite of a pep talk, you know, this is where we're being able to build ourselves up a little bit more. And think about it, if you're talking to yourself that way, how differently do you walk into that interview? Your demeanor is different, the way you hold yourself is different, the way you approach the person is different. So, yes, it can absolutely work very, very well when we're, you know, trying to achieve whatever's important to us.
2: Well, you're the human behavior coach. And do you think, and besides reading your book, obviously, and going to your website, com, you can learn more about Beverly and her book, um, do you think we should all have... Coaching at some time in our life that it was really helpful if we can do it, uh, if we can, you know, fit it into our schedule or afford to do it or whatever it is, that it would really be helpful to have a coach. I've had a coach. I've, I found, you know, several years ago and I found it very, very helpful and it made it even easier to incorporate some of these skills that you're talking about into my life. So I, 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 but I'm asking you the question. Do you think that that is, it's not necessarily essential, but that would be a good thing for people to do if they can?
3: I'm a Big proponent. You know,
2: some of the most important lessons that I've learned and gifts
3: I've been given have either been through situations where perhaps at work we've had a consultant come in or working with a coach individually because I think that when somebody is on the outside, you know, they see things that you may not see and they're able to sometimes give you ideas and different ways to integrate things. So I'm I'm a very big proponent of it. I do firm believe Catherine that you know we've got this all inside of us and that if somebody can you know teach us some steps to take and we're willing to take those steps, we all have the ability to make some of these shifts that we're talking about. But even if you can't say afford to hire a coach perhaps to find somebody, whether it's a friend, it's a family member, it's a colleague who might be willing to work on this with you. So perhaps they'd like to, you know, be more positive, more upbeat, and you'd like to, even if you can do that sharing process, I think that there is just something very powerful about having someone else out there that you're accountable to, that is giving you feedback, and, you know, ultimately you're going to make the choices about what you want to do. But I think it's why, look at the money we pay to our, you know, professional sports teams. They have a coach. I mean, these are talented people, but without somebody to help me figure out which plays are going to make the most sense, I'm not
2: going to be able to win many games. Yeah, and that's a great analogy. I mean, you can't be, uh, sports is always a good one because you'd never have a winning team without a coach. And I think it does work individually as well. You need somebody sort of outside the circle who can take, who doesn't have a stake in your sister-in-law or anything else necessarily in your life, but only a stake in you to help you to be able to see what, you know, what your choice is, what are the results of your choices. And I think one other thing, because we, uh, There's a difference between coaching and actually going into therapy, too, So, and that's a difference, and many people will say, well, I don't want to go into therapy, I don't want to look at my past, I don't want to have to drag myself to it, but that's not what coaching is.
3: Absolutely, and thank you for making that distinction because I do think for many people, you know, if they're at a place where, you know, in some ways digging into some of those things can be a lot, more painful for people can kind of pull them back in and you know sometimes somebody's made a decision I really just want to figure out where do I go from here Um, and they don't want to really spend that time and I don't think for everyone that's necessary for some people that's very valuable too Um, but you know coaching really is more about you know being able I think not just to give somebody the rah-rah but like I said that's why I use the plays analogy I mean it's not just that when they come in you know know uh on the sidelines or to the bench the coach is telling them all just how great they are and you know if they just can go out there and do it you you know he or she is really helping them with some strategies and that's really what coaching is about it's giving us strategies and things we can practice
2: with to figure out well which ones work for me and which ones don't work for me because we are all different yeah i think that's a key word strategies and that's what you give us in the book, and specifically exercises that we can do in order uh, to achieve or to make different choices and to not get into this negative self-talk. Um, you can also associate with your with certain people, and this is not a good thing, um, and I've had clients who do this, you know, they engage with people who kind of, get involved in the negative self-talk with them, and you don't want to attach yourself to people like that either who will sort of get on the bandwagon with, well, i go keep going back to the sister-in-law about how horrible your sister-in-law is and how, you know, or whoever the person is that you're seeing who is your adversary, and that's that's something you need to stay away from.
3: Well, it's it's almost like both ends of that spectrum, Catherine. Like, I think that if you have somebody who is just your rah-rah person, eventually you're going to stop listening because it's not all rosy. It's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. Let's work through it. But certainly you get uh, the the people who enjoy uh, what we would call the pity parties, right, where we just talk, well, your sister said, well, let me tell you about my sister. And what's wrong with siblings? And, you know, the world's going to pause. And, and, you know, and again, so you've got bad enough, I've got this negative self-talk going on inside, but now I've got people outside me telling how everything is terrible. So, um, And, and, you know, and and, and it may be, I, I tell some people, look, stop reading the newspaper for a few days. Stop talking to people that bring you down. You may be in a place where you just literally have to kind of cut yourself off. From those things that just are so depleting until you can practice some of this and have some of those strategies to deal with it.
2: I was talking to someone the other day who said I have to sometimes uh, disconnect from Facebook because I f- it makes, instead of making me feel good, it makes me feel worse because I have all my, all my, I have friends and relatives and even colleagues on Facebook, these beautiful pictures, you know, the place they just traveled to, the wonderful holiday they spent with their family. It makes, this person was telling me, it makes me feel bad, like, what kind of a life do I have? I mean, I'm looking at all these, like, great stuff that it seems all my people that I'm in contact with have, and and really, I can't watch that. I can't do it anymore. So I, and I, but I which was interesting to me, and I'm sure that's not the only person who does that, but it's supposed to be a positive way of connecting, but it also can have negative consequences. Facebook. Absolutely,
3: and you know, I think that whole comparative, I mean, again, that, talk about, you know, fuel for that train running, you know, we look at someone else who may be like us, or, oh goodness, I grew up with that person, why are they so much further ahead, why am I not doing this, or I've never had children, look at their beautiful family. I mean, it just, it's almost like it gives our minds so much fodder for this, because we are in that comparative Mode, so I, I do think for some people, and I tell them, you know, because people say to me, well, you know, I've tried this, it's not working. Well, you know, a lot of what we do, it's these habits that we've created, right? So we're, it, it's, it's just a, we feels natural. But the reality is we've just practiced telling ourselves these things over and over again. And so we have to practice new behaviors, but sometimes in order to let them take hold, we do have to cut ourselves off from those things that really, really drag us down. No one's going to punish you if you don't go on Facebook. And I've gone weeks sometimes without reading the paper. (laughs) And, you know, the world hasn't stopped turning. So uh, it can be done. And sometimes we have to decide we're going to take care of ourselves, and that's just what we're going to do.
2: Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today and I feel better. Um, I want to mention the book again, obviously, Self-Talk for a Calmer You, Beverly Flaxington, and her website is selftalkforacalmeryou.com. So uh, the, is that the only website or the website you want us to go to for more information, Beverly?
3: Sure, that's the best place, yes, and the book's available everywhere.
2: Yeah. Amazon bookstores, everywhere. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning.
3: Oh, it was my pleasure, and yeah. I'm wishing you the best of holidays, and uh, hope you have a wonderful time. work out well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you, Thanks, Catherine. Definitely. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute with our next guest.
0: There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show.
1: If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
0: I'm
2: Catherine Zock, a social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Tricia Bliven Chasanoff, a former neuroscientist turned freelance writer, and she has a passion for understanding how the brain functions. Her book is uh, her new book is Easy to Love, but Hard to Live With: Real People, Invisible Disabilities, and True Stories. And she lives in Philadelphia with her husband, her Aspergian old soul son, as she describes him, and spunky daughter. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Tricia.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Okay. Well, your book, Easy to Love but Hard to Live With, Real People, Invisible Disabilities, True Stories, which has been described as a beautiful exploration of the complexity of disability and how it affects our homes, our lives, our communities, and the global understanding of our differences. Um, That's a formidable task uh, (laughs) that we're taught, (laughs) but you've done it. So these are stories. Yeah. Um, heartbreaking stories I guess at times and stories that really touch us inspiring, enlightening, engaging they've been described as but um, let's get back to actually what we're talking about because you're talking about people with invisible disabilities now what are invisible disabilities versus visible disabilities well
1: basically invisible disabilities are any kind of disabilities and they could be uh, physically based they can be brain based and for this book um, we, we are focusing on the brain-based disabilities. But there are disabilities that aren't obvious. So if you meet somebody with an invisible disability, you're not going to look at them and say, oh, well, they have some extra challenges and some extra struggles, and maybe they need some extra support or compassion or a little bit of different type of understanding. That's not going to be obvious. And if you meet somebody who's in a wheelchair, for example, or visibly ill or injured, um, your inclination, one, one would hope, would be to to provide the support and accommodations that they need. Uh, When you have an invisible disability, um, you have all those same needs for accommodation and understanding, um, but people aren't automatically cued in to provide that. So for our purposes for this book, invisible disabilities, brain-based invisible disabilities, have included um, various forms of mental illness ranging from body dysmorphic disorder to uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, depression, Wait, bipolar let's, well, disorder. Let's go back.
2: When you said body dysmorphic,
1: yes, body dysmorphic. It's, it's basically it's a it's a disorder where you related some, uh, but kind of both related to uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder and to eating disorders. It, it's it's a disorder where you are you struggle to have an accurate understanding and view of, of your own body and physical state. Um, right. And we also and that, covered, I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: No, so that, okay, so that would be somebody you're saying with an eating disorder that we, uh, you know, might necess- not necessarily recognize as one, say somebody who's bulimic, who looks normal uh, in Correct. terms of their weight, for instance, yes. but they are struggling with bulimia, but we wouldn't necessarily, you know, be able to recognize that. Is that what you're exactly, saying?
1: Exactly, exactly. You okay. wouldn't know, and you wouldn't know if somebody, if somebody had depression necessarily or anxiety or yeah, you know, we also covered learning disabilities, so things like dyslexia and attention deficit disorder. Um, you wouldn't know. People with high-functioning autism um, con- or, or other similar developmental disabilities covered fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So a lot of these things that really do dramatically and profoundly influence the way these people are able to na- navigate through the world, but yet to the people around them, even people close to them sometimes, that that... These, they're not obvious, and so we, we're left to wonder, well, well goodness, why is this person behaving in, in this way? Why can't this person behave, quote unquote, normal, normally?
2: So the consequences are, our, expect- our expectations for that person are beyond perhaps what they're able to do, or they're not realistic, because we have no idea, because we can't see what their disability is. I mean, yes. as you say, like a physical disability.
1: Exactly. Okay, so what we the, don't know yeah. that you know, it may have taken all their strength to get out of bed in the morning, um, and and left them completely tapped. We don't know that they're not um, filled with with fear on the inside, and, and trying. They're trying to do their jobs or be a good friend or relate to you, at the same time that they're they're struggling with with panic um, and trying not to let that show. You don't know that you know the the man or the woman with high functioning autism isn't struggling to figure out how to relate to you kind of socially. Um, none of these things are necessarily obvious to us, and so we, instead of being understanding, we rush to judgment. When we do that, and
2: obviously this is what the stories are about in your book, what happens, how does that affect the individual, obviously, and the family, and, as you're saying, the community? What happens? What are the consequences of not uh, of, of all of this, of, of sort of being blind as to what the, this, the person is Suffering from or with, I, th-
1: I think the most grave of consequences is um, a shame. Is that that these people who are really trying to, and, and I, I myself struggle and, and have an invisible disability, and so we we struggle to navigate through the world in in a, in a, in a like everybody else does in a way that we believe is expected of us. Um, and we when can we're tell unable us what to do your, it. since you um can you tell us what yours is, or yes, yeah, I'd be happy to and I, I actually contributed in addition to um you know working with all the other contributors. I contributed a story myself to the book, and um I have obsessive compulsive disorder, and I had it uh started in earnest when I was about eleven and a half or twelve years old. And I didn't tell anybody. Um, everybody knew I was anxious, and people would say to me, "Oh God, why can't you just relax? What's your problem? What are you so worried about?" Um, just, just, just relax. I'd hear that all the time. Just relax. Um, but nobody knew because I was so ashamed, um, and nobody took the time to understand me or try to help me understand myself. Um, that I, I thought my anxiety and my fears. Were a, a personality flaw and not a mental illness.
2: So you were eleven, or you were a prepubescent, I guess. OCD, yes. obsessive I, I was. Um... How, what were the symptoms? Well, how did you begin to realize? Hey, I, I'm not feeling. I, I'm putting normal in quotes, but uh, you know, this I'm I'm anxious. I'm you know, and you can describe specifically the symptoms for people who aren't really sure what OCD is. Yes. Cause we have well, a lot OCD. Of, yeah. A lot of times
1: they have a media portrayal of OCD, and people who think people who have uh, who are only familiar with that kind of media sitcom portrayal will think that people with OCD are constantly washing their hands or checking knock, uh, locks on the door or lining up pictures. And sometimes those can be manifestations of OCD, but those are, again, kind of the media portrayals of it. For me, what happened when I was about 11 is that I developed this terror, this fear that I was pregnant. And... That, that somehow, and I was 11 years old, I certainly had not done anything that would get me pregnant, um, but I had this fear that somehow I had been drugged on my way to the bus stop and gotten pregnant and that I just didn't know. And I, I went, that went on probably for eight, nine years, so a long time. And I, I worried about the shame I would bring to my family and how to explain it and that nobody would believe me that I didn't really know. And... Um yeah so so it, i mean it was and it was completely completely irrational so i i would my obsession was was this fear of, of pregnancy and i would check my body and i would read books about symptoms of pregnancy and constantly self monitor and check my stomach and check everything and then then i would feel kind of some relief that i wasn't pregnant and that relief would be very short lived and then the panic i'd start the obsession again of, uh, well, Okay. Okay. I wasn't pregnant this month. But what if? What if? What if now I really am pregnant? What if this is? What if this is real this time? Um, so the obsession was the, this fear, and the compulsions was this constant self-checking, um, and that went on for like I said, eight or nine years, and then it morphed over time into other obsessions. I became obsessed with, um, <coughs> excuse me, of, of HIV and of touching things and becoming contaminated with HIV through you know, t- touching things out in public. And I was constantly self-monitoring for signs of HIV. Um, I became obsessed at one point that I had killed somebody in my car, that I had a car accident, I would hit somebody, and kept driving, and that I erased it from my memory somehow. So I'd be obsessed with that, and I would compulsively check um, newspapers and, and news um, outlets for any unresolved hit and And. That went on, I mean, really, uh, kind of would, would wax and wane, depending on life circumstances, until I was in my early 30s. I mean, you're and talking about I, a long
2: period of time. So, Tricia, did you share this with anybody? No. Uh, did, I mean, you absolutely, with, not with girlfriends, not, and, and obviously during this time you were doing well. I mean, you're a neuro, neuroscientist. And yes, I graduated as well as you,
1: from college, summa cum laude. I got into a... Uh, PhD program for neuroscience, a prestigious program. I, I functioned. Um, I, I sometimes I don't know how, but I functioned <laughs> with all of this in the background. And <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and I told nobody. I, everybody knew I was anxious. Everybody knew that I, I, I had. you It was pretty obvious I had some sort of anxiety disorder. Um, but I was so ashamed of the obsessions that I didn't tell anybody. And it wasn't until I was in my early 30s, and I at this point I had two children and a, and a husband, and um, you know was just continuing to live with this. And I, I read a story online about a woman who had the exact same exact same symptoms as me, um, the same obsessions, the same compulsions, the same um, inclination and shame that that to, to hide them, and it, it was like uh, being hit by a truck. It was the, the, it was such a profound revelation that oh my goodness maybe maybe um i don't have a character flaw maybe i actually have a mental illness that can be treated and 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 understood and i made an appointment that day and was diagnosed very very clearly <laughs> i have very clear obvious symptoms of ocd and and began the process of 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 healing and recovering from it well, my question um, but,
2: is, I'm thinking about OCD, and obviously, you're a scientist. You're more than well educated, so you know that OCD exists. And and I just want to backtrack because what you were ashamed of, or what you why you felt ashamed, is because of the nature of your obsessions, because they were different, or you thought they were different than other people who had OCD. Yes, um, I
1: think yes, exactly. And I was I was ashamed to admit that I was, you know, I had this fear of pregnancy. Um, of, of or this fear of HIV or this fear I had killed somebody. And not only was I ashamed of them, I was afraid many times if I actually vocalized them, that somehow it would make them true. And somehow it would be, it would make it worse. That if I said, oh, my God, I'm afraid I hit somebody with a car and killed them, that somebody would be like, oh, that was you. And mm-hmm. so I kept it to myself. And it was exhausting. It was exhausting. Now, when um, you... Uh, and, and
2: I can imagine how exhausting it is. I mean, you're like doing double and triple time, like exactly. trying to hide and trying to. Yeah, I mean, it has to be obviously mentally and physically exhausting. But then, when you contacted, or did you contact, or you know, you at least online um, realized that there was somebody else who had the same fears or the same obsessions that you did. Um, did you did you ever contact that person?
1: I didn't, but I did. It did lead me lead me to do a lot of research and reading online, um, and and through that process, I discovered that my the the way my OCD manifested was actually not unusual. They were very common manifestations of OCD. Um, but I think what what that story boils down to for me is the importance of of telling stories and the importance of being honest. So because that person online and I. To this day, I have no idea. I couldn't go back and find that story again if I tried. But um, that, that person, because she had the courage to, to tell the truth, um, profoundly changed the course of my life. And I, that, that's what we are hoping for with this book, is that we have this collection of 35 stories, these people who have all told the truth very courageously, because it's scary. It's scary to, to have that out there about yourself um and our hope is that when somebody else picks up that book and maybe maybe they'll see themselves in one of these stories or maybe they'll see a family member or a friend or somebody they know in one of these stories and they will move from judgment either self-judgment or judgment of of others and move closer to understanding and compassion
2: let's talk about some of other stories too and and because uh, there are obviously there are many stories in the book um what some other stories that may well obviously a different diagnosis than you had, but other di- you know other, um, uh, the, I guess raw is one of the, the descriptions of some of these stories, uh, right. enlightening and inspiring, but also very raw and very yes. open. Um, yes. You know, give us give us an example of what of of another story that that um, that was told in in your book.
1: Well, one of the stories that really kind of stuck with me is a story in there called Falling Short by Ivana Fast. And Ivana is, in some ways, it really exemplifies why we wanted to write this book. She's a woman who just couldn't find success, not academically, not with relationships, um, either romantic or friendships, not in workplaces. And she tried, it wasn't for lack of trying. And she tried to go back to school in different programs. She tried different jobs. And she just couldn't ever make it work. She couldn't figure out why. She just kept falling short. And that went on. She went on her whole life, not figuring out why she could just never fit in. When she was in her early 40s, she was, di- she was diagnosed with something called a nonverbal learning disability, which is something that's not terribly well understood even today, but it is related to kind of the autism spectrum disorder. So these people have difficulties with um, Social and emotional relationships. They struggle with some spatial relationships and some memory um, and some other cognitive skills. Not not that they it impacts intelligence, but they struggle to kind of uh, succeed kind of with cognitive or academic tasks. And she when when she got that diagnosis, when it was finally given a name, she was able to name the problem. Um, she was able to move from the sense of, of shame and not feeling like she was ever enough, to an understanding of, okay, these are my strengths, these are my weaknesses, and let me try to create a life for myself that plays to those strengths. And she was able to do that. now she has a successful career. And, you know, while she still struggles with all the things that are associated with nonverbal learning disability, um, she has a sense of of understanding that has replaced kind of that, that shame. And because you're her describing her life herself.
2: up until her 40s. I was thinking, you know, that she wasn't able to keep a job or she wasn't yeah. able to stay, you know, um, remain in school or do a... It almost sounded like that borderline personality. That's what, it, you know, I guess as a social worker, that's what it sounded like to me, but it's obviously not that. That's very different. Right, no, it doing.
1: wasn't. But, um, but some of the, you know, but similarly, we actually don't have any stories about personality disorders in the book, but but they would also fall into this category of well gosh I, I I'm not fitting in, and I can't figure it out and I don't know why. Um, but then as soon as you give something a name, you know people are all get all um, resistant about the idea of labeling people, especially labeling kids. Um, and I and I find that I'm puzzled by people's resistance to that because you're not labeling the child or labeling the person, you're labeling the problem and you're labeling the struggle. And as soon as you give something a name, you can interact with it and understand it in a different way. And I think that's what happens. You have to define the
2: problem and people don't seem to have that problem if you're talking about a physical disability. I mean, you have to, if you have a heart condition or if you have a certain kind of cancer or whatever you have or pneumonia, they do have to define what the Problem is before it can be treated before you can get the right kind of medication right exactly you, I but mean, for some
1: the same reason thing? that attitude has not um, pervaded the, the the world of um, of mental illness and developmental and learning disabilities um, and it, and it needs to because when again you, you when you name that problem you take away so much of its of its power over, view, over you um, and and I think that's that's a huge piece towards getting these people myself included to be able to function in the world.
2: Well, it's still that stigma associated with, or that's part of it anyway, isn't it? The stigma associated with any kind of mental disability or mental illness yes. or um, there is, and so people, as you say, you they become, they're ashamed if they, have some of the you know, the symptoms or the characteristics of some of these invisible disabilities and don't want to say anything, don't want to share. Right. Um, so I understand the purpose of the book. How does the – this is a little uh, – I have a question. What, you know, we, we talk about the Internet, and often we rail against how terrible it is. and But in this case, as you described, especially in your example – how powerful it can be yes. uh, in a very positive way with this, with what you're talking about, to be able to label some of these symptoms and to come to terms with them, so that you can do something about it by knowing yes. that other people share it with you.
1: Well, and I think I think the internet can be a great tool because so much of what keeps people, um, and I think it's a double-edged sword. So what what keeps people from sharing is the sense of shame and embarrassment. We really always have we have this desire to present this sanitized, um, idealized version of ourselves. You know, so my Facebook statuses will be all breezy and light and look at how beautiful my family and wonderful my life is. We want to portray that that image. And that can be really damaging and, and dangerous. But the flip side to that is that there are places on the Internet where you can go and post anonymously and share these some of these things that maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable sharing with people who know you. Um, and but but the and and while ideally, I think you know we we share ourselves with the the people in our lives, you know, using my example as uh case in point, sometimes you can just go and 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 find a story out there and find a community out there of people who really do understand you
2: I think it, one of the things when you are hiding as you described it, and you did it till you were in your thirties, and this other woman that you talked about was in her forties uh. You really isolate yourself from everyone and, uh, in trying to be in a, a normal or whatever the word is or having the, or live up to the expectations of what you think you're supposed to live up to in terms of your behavior and accomplishments. You really isolate yourself when it, when you really need to connect. So
1: you're doing yes. exactly
2: the opposite.
1: Right. And I think too, like one of the great things about these stories is that the, these, not all of our contributors, but many of our contributors are bright, successful, by By all kind of objective measures, you know there are lawyers, there are social workers, there are life coaches, there are also a whole range of people uh stay at home parents and I think what it what it 's done is that it 's shown that there, that this community of people with these invisible disabilities are are it's a group of people who it's it's good company um, and and that's it's not just these people who are living in the shadows of our culture. Um, it's people who who are out there, and it could be your teacher. It could be your doctor. It could be your attorney. It could be the guy at the grocery store. It could be any of us um, that that are living with these disabilities.
2: So they're having to do double or triple or quadruple overtime in order to accomplish all, you know, all these people that you've talked about, you know, the professionals and teachers. And um, so getting back to the purpose of the book, um, what kind of, a, I mean, I would imagine respo- you get a lot of responses, from, not only from people who, and we only have a couple minutes, people who um, have suffered all of these, and I say indignities, but also the families and the people who love them, who who, who support them. Um, yes. Who are all, as you say, engaged um, with the person and and the community.
1: Yes, and I think the response has been great. I mean, people are um, very very appreciative of the fact that they can see themselves or their family members represented as as part of um, as part of something like this. And it's very profound when you realize for the first time that you're not alone, and that there's a there there's a group there's a community community to which you can belong.
2: Well, it's a very important book. I mean, it's, and uh, one of the things is uh, easy to love but hard to live with. Real people, invisible disabilities, true stories. Um, where what is the website that we can go to to learn more about the book and and you and and what you're doing?
1: Well, you can do a couple of things. Um, there's a, Probably the best thing to do is we have a Facebook page. So if you just go to Facebook and you type in Easy to Love But Hard to Live With, um, we have our own page where we discuss sometimes our own personal stories um, and the, the way we personally relate to some of the stories in the book, but also some, some information and resources um, and thoughts about just invisible disabilities in general. Um, and if you're interested in purchasing the book, which I hope people are, um, you can go to Amazon and order it from Amazon. and It's available in both a uh, uh, paperback version and, and a Kindle version.
2: Terrific. Trisha Blivin-Chasanoff, thanks so much for being on the show this, mo- this morning. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Great having you on the show. Easy to love but hard to live with. Real people, invisible disabilities, true stories. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. And you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America, Variety.com, and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel.